This doesn't matter. None of this matters. All that matters is that we felt it. You want to try and stop me? Look. Hey, where are you going? If I were you, stop worrying about me. Start looking for Penny. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 611, entitled Happily Ever After. This is the 113th episode of the series and there are 8 to go. If you'd like to share your feedback about the podcast, there are, of course, many ways to do it. You can leave a message on the listener line, 732-707-1815. And leave a message that may be used on a future podcast. You can leave a comment on the webpage, looking back at lost.podbean.com. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. And last but certainly not least, you can send an email to me at lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. And indeed, that's what Rachel did. She said uh, as follows Hi, Matt. I was so bummed when PH Geek abandoned the Revolution podcast, but decided to check out your Looking Back at Lost. And I've got to say, it's really awesome. I was a total lostaholic, and listening to your podcast is a chance to enjoy it all over again. I've only just started, and you're almost done, but that means I've got a lot of episodes yet to enjoy. Don't know what you've got planned for your next project, but know that there's someone out there really loving the look back. P.S. Rachel says, I know that Revolution is a complete disappointment compared to Lost, but it's gotten a bit better since its return. Anyway, the best part of your Revolution podcast was hearing you guys trash all its unbelievable writing. Consider giving Revolution another chance. That from Rachel in Madtown, Wisconsin. Well, Rachel, I will say that I can answer a couple of your concerns right there. First of all, we definitely have left the, uh, the world of Revolution behind. However, the podcast adventures of us guys from PH Geek certainly do continue. There's the PH Geek Pop Culture Podcast, which you can find on iTunes by searching for PH Geek or by visiting phgeekpodcast.blogspot.com. And that certainly is a mishmash of a uh, variety of different uh, pop culture uh, takes, whether it's going to see, oh, the latest summer movies, whether it's going to Comic-Cons and the like. Uh, also, simulcast on the PH Geek Pop Culture Podcast is our uh, our new podcast, which will be hitting the ground running in the fall. The Shield Podcast, which has its own website at shieldpodcast.blogspot.com. And uh, we'll be watching the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. television program on ABC. Certainly glad to be uh, returning to ABC for podcasting adventures. And uh, that'll be slowly warming up over the summer as we kind of look back at some of the Marvel movies and then uh, that'll be a weekly podcast, a la the Revolution podcast was uh, once the show uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. starts to broadcast. Certainly all listeners are invited, not just Rachel. Uh, you can subscribe now. You can search iTunes for PH Geek as well. And the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast by PH Geek will, uh, will turn up. And lastly, I don't know that I want to officially announce it yet, but there is uh, probably a semi-standalone, semi 
not standalone uh, podcast that I will be doing in the ilk of Looking Back at Lost, once Looking Back at Lost has concluded its run, taking uh, a TV show that has uh, has already been on and uh, kind of taking a loving, uh, loving return voyage to it. So I won't quite share that information yet, just kind of tease it out there. Uh, something that probably would be a little bit more limited run than looking back at Lost. You know, maybe something in the form of of seasons where I'll I'll podcast for for a bit and then you know take a break for a bit, that kind of thing. But certainly Rachel and all, though looking back at Lost is uh, ebbing ever closer to the end. There certainly is uh, plenty of podcasting in my future, and I hope you all stick around and join me. But of course. We are here for Lost, and let's take a uh, take a look at the Wikipedia summary for this episode, 611, Happily Ever After. In the 2007 original timeline, after being shot by Ben Linus in the episode Dead is Dead, Desmond Hume awakens to discover that Charles Widmore has brought him back to the island. Desmond attacks Charles, who tells him the island is not done with him, and that unless Desmond helps him, everyone he loves will be gone forever. He has his team prepare an electromagnetic test, which kills a team member in the path of the toroids they have set up. Desmond is bound to a chair and locked in with the toroids as a test run. In the 2004 Flash Sideways timeline, Desmond arrives in Los Angeles at the behest of his employer, Charles Widmore. After helping the heavily pregnant Claire Littleton to get her luggage, Desmond goes to Charles' office. Charles informs Desmond that his son, Daniel Widmore, a classical musician, has invited the rock band Driveshaft to perform alongside with him that evening. The band's bass guitarist, Charlie Pace, has been arrested for possessing drugs, and Charles requires Desmond to collect him and deliver him to Daniel's event. Upon their meeting, Charlie tells Desmond that he recently almost died after swallowing a bag of heroin, as seen in LAX, and in his near-death state, he experienced an intense, blissful vision in which he was with a blonde woman. He causes Desmond to crash his car into a nearby marina, and while Desmond attempts to rescue Charlie from the water, he too experiences a vision, seeing Charlie drowning with the words, Not Penny's Boat, written on his palm. The two were taken to a hospital, where Desmond has a short series of visions of Penny, a stranger to him, during an MRI test. After discharging him from the hospital, Desmond apologizes to Charles' wife, Eloise Widmore, being unable to ensure the attendance of Driveshaft. Nearby employees are discussing the guest list for Daniel's concert, and Desmond hears the name Penny mentioned. Eloise refuses to let him see the list, and warns him off of pursuing his inquiries. As Desmond prepares to leave, he is stopped by Daniel, who tells him that he recently saw a red-haired woman in a local museum that he strongly felt he knew and loved. Daniel states after the encounter, he made a series of notes in his journal, which a mathematician friend has identified as advanced quantum mechanics, a topic he knows nothing about. Daniel hypothesizes that the world as he and Desmond are experiencing it is not their correct path, and something massive, like a nuclear explosion, has altered their realities. Desmond questions Daniel as to whether he intends to set off a nuclear bomb, to which Daniel replies he believes he already has. Daniel tells Desmond that Penny is his half-sister and tells him where he can find her. Desmond locates Penny running the steps of an athletic stadium and introduces himself. 
Back to the 2007 original timeline, after the test is finished, Desmond agrees to help Charles. As Charles's team leads him away, they're ambushed by, by Saeed Jarrah, who takes a willing Desmond away with him. The episode concludes in the 2004 Flash Sideways timeline. After shaking Penny's hand, Desmond passes out. When he awakens, he asks Penny out for coffee, an invitation she accepts. As his driver, George Minkowski, takes him to their meeting point, Desmond asks him to acquire the flight manifest for Oceanic 815. When Minkowski asks why he needs it, Desmond responds, I need to show them something. And with that Wikipedia summary out of our way, let's now get into my thoughts about this wonderful episode, an episode that I, I felt at times was... Uh, it's almost difficult to watch for the podcast because I just wanted to watch it. I didn't want to take notes. I wanted to enjoy every every Desmondy moment. Desmond plus Charlie is such a big plus. Then you have Desmond with uh, with Daniel, and it really is just such a, such an excellent episode that speaks to me. But anyhow, let's jump in, shall we? This episode has a cold open, no previously unlost. We get Desmond with that obligatory eye shot, and. Certainly as a Desmond fan, I was so glad to see that they were getting to business quickly. Uh, the camera pulls back more. We re uh, reveal that Desmond is under the care of Zoe. And there's some very um, naturally occurring dialogue that uh, lets us catch up that uh, Desmond was spirited away from the hospital by Widmore. Hey, that's the same Widmore that we saw outside the hospital way back when. And indeed, once Widmore shows up, he confirms that as well. Uh, this, uh, this scene really is an excellent example of recap dialogue and recap dialogue that works. Desmond, of course, has been out of the loop and he really does require this explanation. And albeit, so do we. Uh, after that, there's a fun bit as the scene progresses. Desmond flipping out and smashing NIV stand onto Widmore's forehead. And Why? Because, hey, it's season six and it's time for the story to zip along. Jin shows up and he's promised that the answers will be shown to him, not told. Hey, it's like it's a TV show where they're not going to tell you things. They're going to actually show things in action. But the answer, well, it is, of course, not an answer immediately. It's a big box with heavy cables attached to it and kind of shocked workers inside the hydro plant or scurrying around the hydro power plant, that is to say. They're whirring and buzzing, and there's talk of a functioning electromagnetic field with solenoids. Uh, there's, of course, also the great little gem of the anonymous worker just being sent to check those solenoids, which allows, A, the story to move inside the box, which has these giant copper cables, and B, another anonymous worker to find that flipped breaker on the Jenny, which he'll just, you know, turn on right away since... That's what you do in high electricity stations, right? You just find things turned off and turn them on. The box guy gets fried to death, and Widmore arrives without missing a beat to have Desmond put in there. Ah, drama. It's on that note that we end the teaser act. And after the title card, there's surprisingly little story monkeying around as we're still at the magic box. Okay, we get it, JJ. It's a magic box. Uh, and we get to see the dead, fried guy just to confirm that he's really fried and really dead. Then Desmond is put in between the coils. Widmore suggests that he'll be okay, then says that if it works, he'll ask Desmond to make a sacrifice for him for the sake of Penny and everyone else. 
time for that old son of a carpenter to get that upgrade, I suppose. Curiously, Desmond is able to break out of his chair and walk around the room. Uh, he's not able to get out of that little magic box room, but it just struck me as kind of strange that you would think whatever it is they're trying to do with these big giant copper coils, you should probably be in the middle of and not as far away from them as the, uh, the expanse of the room will allow. So what's all this for? Well, Widmore, back in the power plant, spells it out. Desmond survived one electromagnetic event, and Widmore needs to know if he can do it again. That levers are pulled and gauges flip to maximum. It's all kind of very, very clear to we, the audience, that things are powering up. There's also some truly great effects as the box, the box lights up and lights up, and Desmond screams and screams. Then, presumably, we flash sideways, though, take a listen. Did you catch what was missing there? There's no flash sideways sound. I think that you might have missed it if you uh, are paying attention, of course, to the screaming and the electromagnetic sound effects. It's just a straight story cut. Now, you might argue that Desmond showed up already in the sideways story, so how can this be kind of a, a, a linear take on the story, a la the constant? Um, you know, we did, of course, meet him already on the plane with Jack, but don't forget that where they are at in the Flash Sideways world, it is a timeless place. So I think we can agree that the rules are a bit wishy-washy. Anyhow, in the Sideways, Desmond is told by Hurley uh, where the bag pickup is, and Desmond makes friends with pregnant Claire. Indeed, Desmond blurts out that he bets it's a boy, and here the music leads the emotions, as it always should, with a mysterious suggestion that something is afoot. Uh, I would, of course, put it in the same category as, uh, oh, Kate and uh, the name Aaron of Sun kind of looking in the mirror in, uh, uh, you know, post, uh, post-coitus. There are these moments where that, that real person beneath the surface is just kind of, it's not breaking through, it's just kind of bumping at the, bumping at the surface for a moment and then sinks back down. And I think that that's... Uh, that's one of these. Anyhow, George Minkowski, our old our old freighter pal, uh, is the limo driver for Desmond. It certainly is a nice return to Fisher Stevens, who quickly offers to be uh, Desmond's whoremonger. And uh, with that, Desmond is reunited with his wonderful boss, Widmore, who he warmly hugs. Now, it had me kind of wondering, and I will admit misremembering, at what point Desmond, quote, wakes up and remembers everything. Uh, it is, of course, by and large in this episode, uh, well, not even by and large, it is, of course, in this episode, but not yet. Uh, you, might, you might be confused on repeat viewing, depending on your memory, with the warmth of their hug. You might think that the, you know, the, the fight is over. You might have the, the latent memory of, uh, of Eloise being so aware but here nope no neither are neither are aware of it it's just well as eloise will say later on there was this desire for desmond to uh, get approval from widmore so now he now he has it anyhow at this point story pipe is laid for later usage mrs widmore's charity event is referred to and it is of course requiring a band called 
Widmore says drive shaft. And uh, there's mention of their junky bass player that has to be gotten and babysat. The scene wraps up with another Widmore comment offhandedly that Desmond is lucky to be so unattached, so single. With that, they toast rather uh, ironically to the 60, with the 60-year-old McCutcheon Whiskey uh, because we're told nothing is too good for Desmond. Obviously the opposite to what Desmond has been told in the past. And with that, our Christic hero is off to babysit Charlie. Uh, Charlie who returns, by the way, looking all the more awful. I personally loved seeing two of my most favorite characters back together, the damned Charlie and uh, the rather saintly Desmond. And indeed, it's Charlie who walks across the busy street, not caring that he's risking being hit by multiple cars. He goes to the nearest bar without any words. And Charlie, who was always so upbeat, is absolutely seething in this scene. Uh, Indeed, I wondered if he was perhaps channeling the anger of him being let go from the show. Uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, I would imagine as an actor, you can be both professional and uh, use previous emotions to to improve your performance, to uh, complement your performance. At any rate, kudos to Dominic Monaghan for returning to the show. And uh, indeed, I'd say he gets the preeminent guest role of the season. At this point, they talk love. Desmond hasn't had the real stuff, and Charlie has. And though it's a flash sideways, Charlie, in large part, explains what would have happened, we can assume, in real life, had the plane not crashed. Who's this woman? Two rows in front of me, in handcuffs, same with a cop. He looked at me, knew I was holding. If I didn't take action, I'd be caught. So I got up. Went to the lab, proceeded to eliminate the evidence by swallowing my stash. And at that exact moment, we had turbulence. I choked. The entire bag of heroin was stuck in my throat. It's, uh, it's over. Everything starts to go dark. I'm slipping into the abyss, and then I see... Her. Oh. A woman, blonde, rapturously beautiful, and I know her. We're together. It's like we've always been and always will be. This feeling, this love. And just as I'm about to be engulfed by it, I open my eyes, and this sodding idiot is standing there asking me if I'm okay. But I saw it. Just for a moment, I saw what it looked like. It's an endearing monologue, truly touching, well-delivered, and able to bring us back to the start of the season, and indeed the start of the series. Though with the new important turn that Charlie has seen the vision of Claire and reminds us that it's love, sweet love, that binds us. Desmond pitches the next step. Charlie can sit here and drink away his career or go to a five-star hotel and make a ton of money. At this point, things progress in an undersold way. The return of you all, everybody. 
while they're in the car, and Charlie darkly reflecting on the success that it foretold. And indeed, there's more dark dialogue too. Charlie giving Desmond a choice to either see what Charlie was talking about, he's referring to the near-death experience, or Desmond can get out of the car. This is indeed so completely undersold that uh, I can't imagine a first-time viewer being able to, to predict the fact that Charlie then turns the wheel so that Desmond can accelerate the car toward the water. Just want to throw that out there. No story's perfect. Desmond now out of control of his vehicle, hits the gas. I don't think that would be our, uh, our instinct, but of course, it's all for story purposes, so uh, we can, I suppose, forgive it just a tad. The car goes in, and Des makes his way out, but Charlie doesn't budge. I distinctly remember feeling disappointed when I first saw this. I was sure that the show was going to kill Charlie again and end up leaving him out of more episodes again. But then, after Desmond has come up, gone back down to try and save Charlie, Charlie puts his hand in the car window, and we have flashes before our eyes of not Penny's boat. And it's not just us we see, it's Desmond who sees it too shown by the shaking of his head in wonderment. It's the first time that the two worlds have had some sort of connection. It's a beguiling idea to first-time viewers how the plane again could have crashed and not crashed. We get the act break, then Desmond is being checked at the hospital. In a room, by the way, that looked suspiciously like the one where Jack's wife uh, woke up post-surgery, or I suppose that was his, his future wife. The doctor there says that there are some odd signs in his test, so Desmond is sent downstairs to get an MRI, we're tantalizingly told, in a loud machine which comes with a button. A panic button, mind you. The scene quickly turns into a sound designer's delight at first. It quickly turns into flashes of Penny flashes that we can now recognize as his suppressed real life bursting through into this afterlife. It's the first time that we're seeing this, this sort of connection, and it's time again for Desmond to start the path of the Savior. Hey! What happened, man? Are you all right? I need to find the man I came in with. I need to find the man I came in with. With that, Desmond uh, makes his way out first to the nurse's station and then uh, sees Jack, what a coincidence, not, and explains that he's looking for a third member of Flight 815. Jack is politely shocked at the odds, uh, but any sort of uh, reflection there is quickly interrupted by none other than Charlie himself in a hospital gown on the run, and Desmond tracks him down. Your hands, show me your bloody hands now. You saw something, didn't you? In the water. What was it? What are you looking for me? Who's Penny? I don't know. Oh. You felt it, didn't you? I didn't feel anything. Huh? Then why are you accosting a man in a dressing gown? Right, come on, where are we going? Oh! You think I'm going to go play at a rock concert after this? This doesn't matter. None of this matters. All that matters is that we felt it. You want to try and stop me? Look. Hey, where are you going? If I were you, I'd stop worrying about me. 
Start looking for Penny. Some scenes aren't deeply profound. Others simply restate the central thrust of the drama. That scene, however, deceptively does both by driving the story and again bringing the love between Desmond and Penny to the forefront of our minds and the story. The scene takes us to an act break. Then Desmond is being given a talking to by boss Widmore, who fears the reaction of Mrs. Widmore more than any other, it seems. Not scary enough yet? Driver George Minkowski wishes Desmond luck in meeting her, and then we get her at full force, dressing down a lowly waiter for not knowing the proper placement of a butter knife. But that's not what the scene is really about. It's about her acting as the stalwart guardian of the great flash sideways lie. Mrs. Whitmore? Yes. My name is Desmond Hume. I work for your husband. Oh, of course, Mr. Hume. Charles has told me so much about you. It's a travesty we haven't met before. No, it's about time. Well, the feeling's mutual, Mrs. Whitmore. Oh, please, it's Eloise. Eloise. (laughs) So, uh, what crisis forced Charles to send his best fix-it man into the bowels of charity balls? Well, Eloise, um, I'm deeply sorry but it appears as if uh, Drive Shaft won't be able to perform alongside your son. And uh, I take full responsibility. Don't worry about it. Excuse me? Oh, my son will understand. I suppose if one employs so-called rock stars, certain unpredictability comes with the territory. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You're not angry? Oh, Not at all, dear. What happened, happened. Thank you so much, Mr. Hume, for coming and telling me in person. A pleasure meeting you. And you. Uh, Center that flower arrangement, please. Have a good evening. There's a wonderful look of shock on Eloise's face as Desmond first shows up, much akin, I think, to seeing a ghost, which, to be fair, Eloise is. The scene has a wonderful sense in retrospect of Ellie happily passing off the Desmond problem as she attempts to boot him out of her happy world just as quickly as possible, even if that means that she needs to uh, act pleasant to him. But the scene continues, and as Desmond starts to walk away, the answers start to come. Mary plus one, Milton, Penny, Solo, Pepper, Nicholas plus one. Excuse me. I'm sorry, um, did you just say Penny? And who are you? Um, I work for Mr. Whitmore. May I see the list? You absolutely may not. That list is confidential. Begging your pardon, I, no, I'm entrusted with confidential items. Are here. you questioning me? No, I just want to look at one name on that list. And if for some reason that's a problem. Come with me. Everyone, now. Look, I'm I'm sorry if I've overstepped my bounds, but Stop I just talking, Hume. I've heard what you've had to say. Now you listen to me. I want you to stop. Stop. Stop what? Someone has clearly affected the way you see things. This is a serious problem. It is, in fact, a violation. So whatever you're doing, whatever it is you think you're looking for. 
You need to stop looking for it. Do you, do you know what I'm looking for, Mrs. Whitmore? I don't know why you're looking for anything. You have the perfect life. On top of it, you've managed to attain the thing you wanted more than anything. My husband's approval. How do you know what I want? Because I bloody do. I need to see that list. Or you need to tell me why I can't. Can't? Because you're not ready yet, Desmond. Ready? Re ready for what? The scene has a wonderful echo of the first time we met Eloise. Eloise, who vastly uh, has, has superior knowledge to Desmond, who's too busy to properly tell him what's going on, preferring instead to boss him around with a sense of authority that she's honed in her life and beyond. What the clip doesn't capture, by the way, is Daniel from behind, something that we see, uh, his cool guy hat upon his head, suggesting that Ellie's son in life may indeed also be the aforementioned uh, musical son uh, in death. With that, Desmond kind of has a sad Charlie Brown shuffle back to the limo where the affable George has some booze available to him. And we, the audience in this wonderful, complex, confusing as a first time viewer episode can be secure in the knowledge of one thing that the mysterious sun mystery will be something that the show explores in a later episode. Mr. Hume. Yes? My name is Daniel, Daniel Whitmore. We need to talk. Or maybe they won't explore it in a later episode, and this shocking advance of the plot ends the act. After the act break, we're still with Desmond, and Yes, this is a Desmond episode, of course, and it's one whose semi-flash-forward uh, is taking place in a rather linear fashion, a la the constant of sorts. Nonetheless, it feels so generous of the show to be giving us so much so quickly. In the scene, Desmond assumes that Daniel is upset about the loss of Driveshaft, but instead, Dan wants to talk about love at first sight. Shooting a chocolate bar. She has these incredible blue, blue eyes, red hair. And as soon as I saw her, right, right in that moment, it was like, it was like I already loved her. And that's when things got weird. That same night after I saw that woman, I woke up and I wrote this. These equations are so advanced that only someone who'd been studying physics their entire life could have come up with them. So... So what do they mean? Okay, imagine... Imagine something terrible is about to happen, something catastrophic. And the only way to stop it from happening is by releasing a huge amount of energy. Like setting off a nuclear bomb. You want to set off a nuclear bomb? Just listen. What if this, all this, what if this wasn't supposed to be our life? What if we had some other life, for some reason, we changed things? I don't want to set off a nuclear bomb, Mr. Young. 
I think I already did. The name of the episode is, of course, Happily Ever After. That love is what set off Daniel's first little flashes is at the center of the story. It's a parallel of Desmond's search, set off by Charlie's latent memory of love in the past as well. And by the way, did you catch too that the music in the clip beneath the standard Giacchino scary string moments is a reworking of the Constance music? It's it's love theme, if you will. As Dan asks Desmond why the latter was asking about a woman named Penny, it's a good time to stop for a moment and talk about who knows what. Charlie has seen flashes, though we haven't seen them. Desmond has experienced the same thing, which we saw while he was in the MRI and, to a lesser degree, uh, underwater. And, of course, Dan has experienced the same thing. As for Eloise, well, that's a different ball of wax altogether. Her dominant knowing attitude is absolutely in line with the later revelation that she does indeed know all, that she's the mama bear with snarling fangs trying to keep her son close at hand, all the while knowing that everyone around her is ignorant to their own death. The Daniel scene wraps up with Desmond declaring the Penny woman to be an idea and Dan revealing that she's his half-sister and he knows where and when she'll be. At this point, the story moves so recognizably to the stadium. And as Desmond walks up, he sees Penny doing the tour de stade, just like the last time we were there. It's an unremarkable scene on paper. Desmond introduces himself to her and they shake hands. Yet the actors carry it. The actors breathe life into it with her uh, bemused lack of recognition, Desmond's uh, growing, sleepy sense that there may be some force of fate. It's a tissue-paper-thin moment that's carried by a promise, the promise of, of true love. And as they shake hands, it's over. Desmond, island Desmond, wakes up in the electromagnetic box, staring at his hand, the hand that, just, that he just held his wife in. Then Widmore and Zoe and others come in, um, and the island, as it, as it often can feel with a great off-island story, the island feels foreign to us. The island story feels secondary to, to what our heart wants. But on the island we are, and quickly we see that there's been a change in Desmond, and an obvious change at that. Would you help me out, please? I'm really sorry we had to do this to you, Desmond. But as I told you, your talent is vital to our mission. So if you just let me explain. It's all right. I understand. What? I said I understand. You told me you brought me here to the island to do something very important. Yeah. When do we start? There's a hushed, blessed sound to Desmond's voice. He's, he's always been, to me, this Christ metaphor. Always been someone prepared to risk his life for the sake of the afterlife or the group or, or others, small o. And that notion has never been more clear, either on the show or in my analysis. And in a sense... What we heard just there is the climax of the episode, where, while not all has been answered, so much now makes so very much sense. Well, 
it's the climax for this story anyway, because while there's a little falling action after the climax as Zoe and Des reflect on his bit of change, it's quite quickly uh, before uh, Saeed arrives, kills a red shirt or two, and sends Zoe on her way. Saeed, who we know to be so bad, to have been touched by evil, to have been poisoned by the island devil, says that Desmond must come with him, and Desmond, to our horror, agrees. Then, for the first time in the episode, we get a flash-forward sound, and Desmond is waking up from having passed out. He's at the stadium, and Penny is wondering if they've met before. She's ready to take an exit, I think to our faint horror, but though the hour draws near for the end of the episode, the story isn't quite over. Hey, listen, um, would you like to go for a coffee? What now? I'm a sweaty mess. I just fainted in front of you. <laughs> Let's see, we're even. <laughs> There's a coffee shop on the corner of Sweetser and Melrose. I'll meet you there in an hour. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There's such a light effervescence to their conversation, one that speaks to the skills of the actors and the serendipity in their casting, and one that most of all speaks to all the best of the show's commentary about love and life. But such happy things are not a place with which you can really end an episode of Lost, can you? So, did you find what you were looking for? Yes, George, I did. Order Melrose and Suiza, please. You got it. And if there's anything else I can do for you, Mr. Hume, you just name it. Actually, there is one thing, George. Can you get me the manifest for my flight from Sydney? Oceanic 815. Just the names of the passengers. Sure I can. Do you mind if I ask you what you need it for? I just need to show them something. As the dialogue pauses before Desmond's last line, he's looking into the camera, well-lit, looking inspired, as indeed we should be too. My only complaint is that the show, with Giacchino at the forefront, mistakes mystery for danger and kind of pushes the typical lost ending uh, with those foreboding tones belaying our sense of Desmond, of Penny, of optimism. The ending there, it's Desmond uh, trying to show them an ending of, 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 of hope, a way out of redemption. And my only complaint is that it's a pity that the strings don't show that. that they sell it as, you know, evil mystery, evil mystery, and not, uh, not imbuing it with a sense of... Um, a sense of hope that the episode itself has had. With that, let's take a look at Lostpedia for some of the bits and pieces I have missed. This first one is perhaps the best one. 
Penny asks Desmond to meet her at a coffee shop on Melrose and Sweetser in Los Angeles. There is no coffee shop on Melrose and Sweetser. However, there's an antique shop called Thanks for the Memories. Fun little coincidence there. Also, Lostpedia says, despite both being former main cast members, Jeremy Davies, Daniel, and Dominic Monaghan, Charlie, are credited as guest stars and not special guest stars, continuing the season six trend of uh, one entirely alphabetical guest cast list. Jeremy Davies appears for the first time since Follow the Leader, a gap of 12 episodes. Daniel Faraday becomes the fifth former main character to appear in season six. And Fisher Stevens, Minkowski, makes his first appearance since Meet Kevin Johnson after a 32-episode gap. I think that certainly speaks to the, uh, oh, the, the memorable place that his small character holds in our memories. Continuing here in Lostpedia, this is the second episode after Not in Portland, which has scenes off-island and on Hydra Island only. Certainly is a fun uh, factoid there. And in conclusion, several tail section background cast appear for the second time after their disappearance back in season two. First time was the season premiere. They can be seen in the airport in the Flash Sideways timeline, along with some middle section background cast. To that, I say kudos to the show. I'm certainly not somebody who's matching up background extras and the fact that they... Um, we're so judicious about it. it certainly speaks to the to the craft of the show. With that, friends, let's look ahead to next week. Next week is episode six twelve. Everybody loves Hugo. You want to talk about an effervescent ending to this episode, an effervescent episode itself, and uh, one that's just uh, so enjoyable. And after that, the last recruit, the candidate across the sea, what they died for, then the end, part one and part two, probably with some. Uh, some other reflection type episodes along the way just to to uh, help us hit that mark of August 15th, 8.15 and the podcast will conclude with that everybody do always feel free to keep in touch I mentioned at the top of the episode how you can do so it's great getting emails tweets uh, voicemail messages from people comments on the webpage speak up dear losty friends with that everybody Talk to you all again next week. For Everybody Loves Hugo, take care, one and all, and bye-bye.